0: our text this evening is uh, from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 31 through 39, verses 31 through 39 in John chapter 5. I'd like to begin reading at verse 30, where our Savior says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. For the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. It's becoming increasingly difficult to know who and what to believe. I'm thinking of the competing voices on the internet that all seek our attention. And it's not uncommon to have one website's claims contradicted by another, both claiming to have the truth, but not both can be right. So how do we know which one to believe? This is where the power of evidence comes in. We look for ways to prove the validity of one claim over the other. And one important piece of evidence is who is behind the information? Who is behind the website? Is it China? Is it Russia? Is it Iran? Is it a U.S. organization? Is it a U.S. citizen or citizens? Is it In in some cases, when we're dealing with religious websites, is it believers who lie behind it or unbelievers, evangelical Christians, reformed Christians? Um, And with regard to other websites, is it a political party, a special interest group? Is the person or people presenting the information educated? And if so, where were they educated? In what way were they educated? Is what they are reporting something that lines up with their area of expertise? Do they have a hidden agenda that would prompt them to manipulate what they present in a way that distorts the truth? And so one way of assessing truth claims is to find out who is making the claim. Another piece of evidence is the fruit of what they have said. Does what they say make sense in real life? And are there examples of people who have actually tried their claims and found them true? And this is where personal testimonies come in and history is brought to bear. God made us in his image, and and as such, we are rational, moral creatures who are able to evaluate evidence as we seek truth. We want to know what is correct, and not only what is right morally, but also what is going to help us live good lives of peace and happiness, and ultimately what's going to enable us to live in a way that glorifies God. At the same time, we are not unbiased in our pursuit of truth, and we need to recognize that. We naturally welcome evidence that supports what we already believe. We tend to reject evidence that calls into question what we um, already believe, and uh, we readily believe flattery. We resist criticism. And worst of all is the effect of the fall on our thinking and on our minds and and what is called among theologians the the noetic effect of sin, um, especially in terms of evaluating spiritual matters. And what I'm talking about when talking about the noetic effect of sin is I'm talking about how the fall has affected our ability to correctly understand things, to correctly know and understand ourselves and God and the world around us. Basically, the effect of sin on our minds is to blind us to the truth of who God is and what he wants from us. And what does he want? Well, he wants our submission to him in worship. He wants us to give thanks to him as our creator and to recognize that he is the source of all good gifts. And even more specifically, because of our sin, which deserves his wrath, he wants us to acknowledge our need for his help in restoring fellowship with him. And in an amazing display of grace and mercy, God has provided help through his son, Jesus. So think of it, though God is the one who has been offended by our sin, he is the one who has provided his son to be our savior by taking the punishment we deserve and by earning for us through his perfect obedience, the blessings of eternal life. And all that God requires is that we confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus' saving work, to, to trust in what he has done as alone being able to merit for us forgiveness of our sins and to grant us fellowship with God. But because of the fall, because of the noetic effect of sin, we are blind by nature to the seriousness of our sin. We don't see the need to look to Jesus for salvation. And so we think that we can just by our works earn our own way to heaven. But of course, in this, we are gravely mistaken. And yet there is evidence that God presents to sinful men, including us, of what he has provided in Jesus. And what Jesus presents in these verses before us this evening are four witnesses to the truth of who he is. We have the witness of John the Baptist. We have the witness of Jesus' miracles. We have the witness of the Father. We have the witness of Scripture. And so I've taken, um, because we see these four witnesses here in these verses, I've taken as the theme the four witnesses. And in the first of three points, I want to draw your attention to what is being witnessed, about what or whom are these four witnesses testifying. And in the second point, I will present each of these four witnesses. And then in the third point, what is the goal behind the testimony of these four witnesses? So we begin with witness to what? So before we consider the four witnesses, let's consider what is being witnessed. And perhaps it's obvious, but it still needs to be stated for clarity that the four witnesses of our text are bearing witness concerning Jesus. Especially they are testifying to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is as the Son of God, equal with God the Father. The natural question that these witnesses are answering is how do we know that what he says is true? I want to remind you of how in the immediate context, Jesus has just done and said a number of things that are a claim to divinity. For example, Jesus has just healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, and in the context of that miraculous healing, Jesus told the man to take up his bed and walk, and verse 9 tells us, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Because the man carried his bed on the Sabbath, contrary to the rules of the religious leaders, they interrogated him about what he was doing. And he explained to them that it was Jesus who told him to carry his bed. And we are told in verse 16 that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Then verse 17, but Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. In verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then what happens next is that Jesus defends his claim to be the divine son of God. He explains that everything that he does is by the direction of the father. Furthermore, he asserts that he has a special relationship with, with the Father such that he is able to see what the Father is doing and is able himself to do divine work. Just like the Father does, Jesus raises the dead and gives them life, spiritually and saving sinners and in the future, in raising the bodies of the dead when he judges all men. And speaking of Jesus as judge, he tells us that the Father has given the work of judging all men to the Son, to Jesus, in order that people will give the very same honor that they give to the Father, to the Son. So connected and interdependent are the Father and Son that if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. If you hear Jesus and believe God has sent him, you have eternal life. And furthermore, just as the Father has life in himself as only the one Eternal God can, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In some, Jesus has just explained that indeed the Jews are correct in understanding Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, equal with God. Yes, Jesus is God as one who knows the mind of the Father and who does the work of the Father and has in himself the very same life as the Father. Jesus is God, just as worthy of worship as the Father. This is all part of his claim, and a mighty powerful claim it is. Now, as Jesus sets forth four witnesses of who he is, he is once again asserting his divine connection to the Father. For Jesus has just said in verse 30, he can do nothing on his own. He says he can do nothing on his own. This is not simply a claim of dependence upon God the Father like we say when we say that apart from Christ we can do nothing. You see, it would be true to say that apart from the Father Christ can do nothing in the sense of his dependence upon the Father, but that's not really Jesus' point. His point that he is not able to do anything on his own because as he goes on to say, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He is not able, there's no ability to do anything but what his father wills because, as he will say later, he and his father are one. And this is evidence from how, as Jesus explains, he says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. In other words, he will judge in accord with what he hears from the father. That's exactly why his judgment will be just. Now, he doesn't use the word here perfectly, but it's not needed. Judgment that is just is perfect judgment. And this kind of judgment is possible. Jesus is claiming this kind of judgment because of his comprehensive knowledge of all men. That includes knowing their hearts. And that is possible only because he knows the mind of the Father. Only God can rightly judge all mankind. And therefore, for Jesus to rightly judge all mankind It's only possible because he and the Father have one mind, and thus one will. And this is possible only because they are one in essence. And uh, this truth is then applied by Jesus to his own personal witness about himself. As Jesus explains in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Even in bearing witness, Jesus doesn't do it By himself, he can't, you see. For how could he bear witness alone about himself when, as he has just asserted, he says and does only what the Father wants him to say and do? If he, as the Son, is God, and of course he is, and the Father is God, then how could he bear witness about himself without involving the Father? The Father does not corroborate Jesus' witness then, of course, Jesus' testimony to be one with the Father would be false. There's also another sense as well to what Jesus says when in verse 31 he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, Jesus is not in those words saying that it's possible that his, his claim is untrue. That he's not admitting the poss- that even the possibility of that. But the idea is that if the only witness that Jesus has concerning his divinity, is himself, well, his claims to be divine would be untrue in the estimation of his audience. In other words, Jesus is making the amazing claim that he is God's son, equal with God, but if there is no additional proof or evidence other than his own witness about himself, well, it would be understandable, would it not, that his audience would question his claim. In a court of law, the claim of one person about himself isn't going to be accepted as solid testimony. But as Jesus asserts, he can't do anything on his own, not even in witnessing about himself. Even in his claim to be divine, he's only seeing and doing what the Father is doing. In some, his work of testifying to himself is the work of the Father. In testifying that he is the divine Son of God, he is doing the will of the Father who sent him. So, naturally based on all that Jesus has said and connecting himself to God the Father, the main witness to whom Jesus is, is, is the Father. And after stating that he doesn't bear witness alone, he immediately insists in verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, it won't be until verse 37 that we are told directly that it's the Father who bears witness about him. And of course, the Father is the main witness, the most significant witness that Jesus has to confirm his identity. And in fact, as we will see, all of the other witnesses are connected in some way to the witness of the Father, and yet Jesus will refer specifically to the witness of the Father later. But for the first witness in the list of four, Jesus turns to the witness of John the Baptist, verses 33 through 35. He says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember that John's ministry was all about bearing witness to Jesus. We learned this clear back in chapter 1 in verses 7 and 8, where the apostle John says regarding John the Baptist, he came as a witness To bear witness about the light that all might believe, that is, that all might believe in Jesus through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And what did he say in his role as a witness? Remember when the Jews sent priests and Levites to ask John who he was, he immediately confessed that he was not the Christ He explained that he was the one foretold by Isaiah who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. And then there was the testimony that took place the very next day when as Jesus came walking and as he was approaching, John announced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he makes this amazing claim that Jesus ranked before him because he was before him. Even though John was born before Jesus, Jesus was before John because Jesus existed eternally as the Son. That was John's point. And then in verses 32, this is still in chapter 1, in verses 32 and following, we have recorded some of John's words of testimony. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So notice how it was not out of place that Jesus there in verse 32 made reference to another witness, the Father, and then immediately turns to talking about John. For notice how even John's witness is tied up with that of the Father. We've been told that John's witness concerned what the Father had told him. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And So it was the Father, it was God himself who identified to John that Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah. And it was when John was baptizing Jesus that the Spirit descended and remained on him. The other gospel writers also record, remember, the voice of the Father declaring at that moment, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. You see that Jesus makes an interesting clarification in verse 34 about John's testimony. He says, we wonder, what does he mean when he says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. It would make sense for Jesus to point out that just having another man's testimony is not enough to prove he is the Son of God. Think think about if all he could offer as proof of of his divinity is his own testimony, and then that of another man, namely John, that would be pretty flimsy evidence. But there's another angle of meaning as well that makes sense of Jesus' words. Jesus has received testimony from man concerning who he is, but does he need this testimony? I'm talking about himself. Does he need this testimony in order to know that he's the son of God. Think of Jesus as the God-man, the word who has taken to himself human flesh. If the only testimony of his Godhead was from himself as a man, or testimony came from John the Baptist of who Jesus really is, as God's eternal son, as the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world, That would not prove decisively who Jesus is, even to Jesus himself. The testimony that Jesus has accepted as proving his identity, it's not from man. The testimony that Jesus has received is the testimony of the Father, which raises then the question, so then why has Jesus mentioned the testimony of John? It's not because that testimony was needed to convince Jesus of who he is. But John's testimony is important as pointing people to Jesus as the divine savior of sinners. It's it's thus a testimony through which people can be saved. And so the intended benefactor of John's testimony is not Jesus, but sinners who need to be saved. And uh, notice that what Jesus says about John indicates that on a certain level, his testimony was fruitful. Uh, He says he was a burning and shining lamp. Jesus is, of course, the light. But John was like a lamp as a source of light. He was not the light itself, but like a lamp. He was an instrument of spreading the light about Jesus. And in a way both ironic and sad, Jesus points out to his hearers, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John the Baptist's ministry was initially well-received. Messianic excitement was generated as he announced the Messiah's coming. He insisted that sinners prepare for his coming. He spoke of the kingdom of God and salvation and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so there was this this joy and excitement that surrounded John's ministry. But it ended up being like the joy of the stony ground in the Lord's parable of the soils. Remember that soil was the one in which the plants immediately sprang up but with no roots, just withered away when the sun rose. And Jesus said in explanation, these are the people who hear the word and immediately receive it with joy, but have no root in themselves, and so only endure for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so at first and for some time, many believed John to be a man of God and thus a man of truth who would recognize the Messiah when he came, but when Jesus was opposed by the religious leaders, and when the civil government came against both John and Jesus, many of John's followers all fell away. And It makes sense that Jesus would speak of the joy in John's light having been only for a while, because as Jesus spoke these words, the followers had already fallen away to a great extent. John the Baptist was at least in prison, but there are some who think that he was beheaded already at this point. And so many of his followers had been left disillusioned. Their waning joy makes us wonder exactly what happened when John's testimony was considered true for a while. Was he just, was he proven untrue? Did people... Uh, figure out he was a liar, a false prophet. No, he was never considered anything but a man of light, a proclaimer of truth. And so it is that people turned from him for no legitimate reason. The, the reason was disappointment over a man of God who was persecuted by earthly powers. And there was fear that the same things would happen to them. Well, as great as John's testimony was, as true as it was, Jesus turns to the greater testimony of these additional witnesses, the witness of Jesus' miraculous works, the direct witness of the Father through Jesus, and then the witness of Scripture. So Jesus sets forth the second witness in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. These Works are Jesus' miraculous signs that pointed to the fact that he was no mere man. No mere man can turn water into wine. No mere man can heal the sick by merely speaking. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, explains, he says, "...the works in which Jesus is engaged are his miracles, including the healing of the man at the pool. These works, to be sure, do not of themselves produce faith." They are never as important as are the words of our Lord. Nevertheless, they must not be ignored. They should serve to strengthen faith. Also, they have evidential value, for there was truth in the remark of Nicodemus. No one can do these signs which you do unless God is with him. These signs were a seal of the father's approval, specifically of the fact that the father had commissioned him, end quote. And J.C. Ryle also says of the Lord's miracles when our Lord was upon the earth, his miracles produced an immense effect on the minds of men. They were so many, so public, and so incapable of being explained away that our Lord's enemies could only say that they were done by satanic agency. That they were done, they could not deny. End quote. So there's the the witness of the Lord's miracles, and then there's the witness of the Father as set forth in verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has borne witness, himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent These verses are a little bit difficult, requiring some explanation, and the difficulty is understanding exactly what this witness of the Father involved. And I think the key is found toward the end of verse 38 in the words, and you do not have his word, that is the Father's word, abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So Jesus here is condemning how the Jews have responded, talking about not every Jew, but as a whole, many of them have responded to the revelation God gave of himself in the Old Testament. How they responded was worthy of condemnation. And the emphasis is on the fact that they have never heard or seen the revelation God gave of himself. Now, naturally, they're going to be thinking of the Old Testament. They're going to be thinking about how, well, they've never heard the voice of God like Moses did on Mount Sinai. Now, um, they never saw his form like Moses or Jacob did or Adam and Eve for that matter. Remember in Genesis. Chapters 2 and 3, we read there of God talking with Adam and Eve and walking in the garden. In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestled with a man whom he later realized was God, and he testified, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Exodus 33:11 says that the Lord, that is Jehovah God, the Lord all in caps, used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, these Old Testament accounts in no way contradict what John has said back in chapter 1, 18, verse 18. There he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so the truth is that no one has seen God in his spiritual essence. But God had revealed himself over the centuries a number of times in a human form, what are called theophanies. And it's significant that here in verse 37, John says his form you have never seen. And the word form is not referring to God in his spiritual essence, but it's a word that refers to a visible manifestation. So here, a visible manifestation of God. And that's, of course, exactly what Jesus is. He is God become flesh, dwelling among men. He is the only God who is at the Father's side, making the Father known. And so in hearing Jesus, the people are hearing the Father, and in seeing Jesus, they are seeing the Father, though in human form. And Jesus will later say these, he will say straight out these truths directly. So what does he mean when he says that they have not heard the Father's voice and haven't seen the Father's form? Well, I can imagine them saying, agreeing that they haven't seen any theophanies, at least that they know of, clearly, though, uh, and, and that they haven't heard Uh, God speak to them, but of course, they're not recognizing that Jesus is the father speaking to them and and coming to them in the form uh, 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 of a human being, but as the father, they're they're not accepting Jesus as a theophany. And uh, Jesus goes on to condemn this lack on their part. He says that the problem is they don't have God's word abiding in them. Now does he know all of this? that they have neither heard the Father's voice, nor seen the Father's form, nor have his word abiding in them. Jesus explains, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is condemning a spiritual problem. When he says, his voice you have never heard, the word heard refers to listening and obeying. When Jesus says his form you have never seen, the word refers to paying attention. Paying attention and specifically to spiritually perceiving and seeing. And that the word was the word with a capital W, we're talking about the word of God, was not abiding in the means that they did not have that word in their hearts affecting their thinking and affecting their living as only the Holy Spirit brings about in the context of the new birth. And so the point is that Jesus' audience was not obeying the Father as he had revealed himself in the Old Testament. They were not paying attention to to how he had manifested himself in the Old Testament, there was this pattern of God revealing himself in the form of a man. And if they had known the Father in these ways, they would have recognized what he was doing in sending his Son in the form of Jesus. The Old Testament, the manifestation of the Father in Jesus' works, the the manifestation of the Father in Jesus' words, the manifestation of the Father at Jesus' baptism, announcing that Jesus was his beloved Son. In all of this, there was clear testimony from the Father of who Jesus is, clear to those who know the Father. But in not seeing and hearing the Father in Jesus, they were not seeing or hearing the Father. And then there is the fourth witness, which has already been a part of the Father's witness, but which Jesus now clearly sets forth on its own, the scriptures themselves. Listen to what Jesus says about the kind of relationship that a person can have with the scriptures while missing their main point. He says, you search the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So they were people who... Search the scriptures. That means they, they studied the scriptures. Well, why? Because they believed that in simply knowing them, they would find eternal life. We know that they believed in salvation by works. They believed that in simply knowing the truth and living in obedience to God's law, they could earn God's favor and have eternal life. While it's absolutely true that the scriptures have eternal life, the way to eternal life is not simply to study them. One must know what the scriptures are all about. And Jesus says, they bear witness about me. The Old Testament is about Jesus, which is why I read earlier from Luke 24, where on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, these scriptures, they were about me. They were pointing out what was going to happen to me, that I would suffer before entering into glory. Um, In uh, verse 46, which we'll consider... Um, next time, Jesus will say, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So the first five books of the Bible written by Moses were about Jesus. From the promise to Eve of a son who had crushed the head of Satan, to the promise made to Abraham of a seed through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, to the promise made to David of a king who would reign eternally over God's people, to the promise of a child who would be born in Bethlehem, who would be our Savior. The Old Testament pointed the faith of God's people to a divine Savior who would come and dwell among us. That one who, who though a son of Israel, is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 53 prophesied of a Savior who would bring us peace with God by being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And so if you are reading the Old Testament scriptures correctly, the aid of the Holy Spirit, they they bear witness about Jesus. And So it is that St. Augustine is credited as saying, the New Testament is in the old concealed, the old is by the new revealed. The old is about ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have these four witnesses to who Jesus is as our Savior and God, John the Baptist, Jesus' miracles, the Father, the Scriptures. And so what is the goal? What is the goal of these witnesses? Well, the first is that people would put their faith in Jesus Christ and in that way obtain eternal life. John states in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it's a key verse to the whole gospel, so I'm I'm sure I'm going to bring it up again and again But it says there, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the purpose of these witnesses is that people will recognize that you and I, that sinners will recognize that Jesus is God and thus listen to him as the source of life and truth In exactly the way we would listen to God were he to appear before us in his glory and speak to us. Jesus is the word and the word is God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The testimony of these four witnesses is unmistakable. Jesus is God. He is the one promised who had come to save us from our sin and to refuse to listen to him. To refuse to trust in him is to reject God. It's only a stubborn heart that refuses to believe. It keeps anyone from Christ. The evidence is clear. To listen to him and to trust in him is to trust in God. And so may God open your heart to receive Christ for who he is. Hopefully he's already done that. But How important it is that we would receive Christ for who he is as the son of God. And if you are trusting in Christ as your divine savior, then you can be sure that you have heard the father and you have seen his form. Now we haven't actually seen Jesus with our eyes, but through the eyes of our mind, we have seen the father in Jesus as we read of what he did and said in scripture. And we have God's word abiding in us. We can know that if you are trusting in Christ, then you know that God's word is abiding in you because that word points to the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior. And if this is something of which you are convinced, if this evidence is meaningful to you, then you must praise God because those who believe and are thus children of God have been born, John has told us, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God who has convinced us of the power of these evidences. It is God who has saved us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these four witnesses of who he is that so powerfully speak to his divinity as your son, equal with you. Father, we thank you for the witness of the scriptures. We thank you for the witness of the Father. We thank you for the witness of his miracles and the witness of John the Baptist. Lord, in all of these witnesses, the truth was clearly proclaimed. And yet we know that there's so many who resist this witness. In fact, will not believe it apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that we each one here might know the work of the Holy Spirit, convincing us of the validity of these witnesses. The, the evidence is clear. But, Father, uh, we know that we have to be convinced by your mighty work. And so, Father, we thank you. If we believe, we know it's of you. And uh, we give you praise. For it is your grace by which we even have faith. For faith is a gift. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.